I have a long-standing battle with copy machines. If anything tempts me to lose my salvation, it is a Xerox. It's a long-time battle I've had since I first got into business some almost 30 years ago. I touch them, they break. I get within five feet of them, they shut down. I seem to be the only one that can put paper in them. Because every time I go to print something, it says it's out of paper. And then I open up the drawer that's indicated. Drawer number two is out of paper, and I find it's actually filled. It's really drawer number three. So I take the paper out of two and put it into three, and then it tells me three is empty. I do not like them. They do not like me. They tempt me to lose my joy. Something as silly as a copy machine can frustrate us all. But there are so many more significant things that tempt us to lose our joy, that pull, us, pull at us and nag at us. And yet we see the Apostle Paul here rejoicing in this prison cell. Something far more serious than a dysfunctional copy machine or even a dysfunctional relationship with a copy machine. But one who has been beaten and imprisoned waiting for the removal of his head from his shoulders is one who is rejoicing. How is it that he rejoices? How is it and what is it that you and I can learn from these passages this morning that we too may be joyful in whatever our life circumstances find us today? Well, the first thing I want you to see is that Paul teaches us that joy knows its source. Look with me at verses 18 and 19. Some preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. And he goes on to say that uh, they do it out of love, knowing that he's put here for the defense of the gospel. But then there's this whole other group that's doing it, trying to exacerbate the punishment that he gets in prison. And yet he comes to this thing. He says, only in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. How, he says, even emphasizes, yes, I will rejoice. And here it is, the source of his joy. For I know that through your prayers and the help of Jesus Christ, his spirit, this will turn out for my deliverance. You see, Paul says there's two sources there of his joy and the motivation for his rejoicement. He recognizes he's not alone, but in the pleasant partnership of expressing the gospel of Jesus Christ with the people of God. That there's a brotherhood, a sisterhood. There's a commonality. There's a unity. There's a preciousness in this partnership that he has with the church in Philippi. That he realizes there's an amazing affection we have for each other. And out of that affection causes intercessory prayer. 
The source of his rejoicing is the family of God which prays for him and he for them. Paul, the apostle, one of the strongest Christians we've ever known. From his example and the testimony of his life, the greatest evangelist possibly ever to live. Second only to Christ and his mission. And yet we find him saying, I depend for my rejoicing in the prayers of the people for me. Shouldn't it make you and I ask, how important is it that we're praying one for another? How, how should we be intercessing for one another? How is it that we could do that if we don't even know one another? Beyond superficial means? How are we to engage in a productive prayer for each other if we don't really know what's going on with each other? Now, I'm not speaking from the idea of gossip. I'm not speaking from the idea of being nosy. But I'm speaking from a genuine and natural love that Christian brothers and sisters are to have one for the other. Unless you think that comes natural, I assure you it does not. That we commit to love one another, not because of one another, but in spite of one another. Because Jesus has commanded us and put it on our hearts to honor and to respect one another. It's not an optional gift that we have a natural affinity to be connected one to another. But it is a mandate from Christ that we do so. Last Friday evening at the men's ministry, we were tempting intentionally to do this. We're trying to couple men together, man to man. Men to be uh, intentionally involved in another man's life. To say, brother, I intentionally want to be in your life so that I can pray for you and you for me. I want us to have a trust and an honesty with one another that I can unveil my heart to you and you unveil your heart to me. Not so that I might judge you, not so I might gossip you, not so that I might look down upon you, but that I might lift you up to Christ. That you might lift me up to Christ. Realizing that takes time, realizing that takes energy, realizing that takes um, a real intentional effort to do so, but still it takes the first step to engage and to move in. I want to tell you something. If you could have been there Friday night, ladies, you would have sawn a bunch of uncomfortable men. Relationship with another man. Well, I'm going to have to pray about that. Uh, good idea, but let me think about it. Uh, I'm a little hesitant uh, to get involved in this kind of thing. Good idea. See you in about two months. It does not come natural. 
It only comes by commitment and an intentionality that we put on our hearts, on other people's hearts, and theirs on ours, and we pray for one another. We honor one another. Some of you ladies, that comes very easy on the surface and in public. But don't all of us have the problem of honoring someone to their face and then dishonoring them around the corner? It is from there that you and I repent because if we do not repent, we find it erodes our joyful life. It takes away and it robs us from the idea of rejoicing. You may wonder why, but I'll tell you the truth of God through His Word. The reason for it is, is that you and I were meant to live in community with one another, loving one another and honoring one another, not independent from each other. We were to live as servants to one another, humbling ourselves before one another. Even as we look this morning at the call of worship in Christ who came as a servant, we too come to one another as servants, humble. We don't come to one another with bats and sickles and swords, but we come with a wash basin and a rag and broken hearts. With broken lives. It says, brother, sister, I'm here to honor you by anointing your feet. Is that our heart? We are to be a rejoicing people, but the only way we can rejoice is if we live in the context of how rejoicing is to happen according to the Holy Spirit. Second thing Christ says here is not only it is through intercessory prayer, but it is the Holy Spirit. It is the blessing of the Holy Spirit. Our joy comes to us exactly by that. It comes to us. Each of us who are followers of Christ at the moment we commit our lives to Christ, we are indulged. We are deluged. We are filled and completely filling constantly with the Holy Spirit. The original language, the way that it's pronounced there is that we are like fountains exploding all the time with the Holy Spirit. That once and for all, as we come to Christ, Christ takes hold of us and pours into us the Holy Spirit that is continually flowing out of us like living water. There is no limit, there is no capturing, there is no lid that we put on it. It is alien to us. It is a forensic proclamation of the throne of heaven that says this is true about you. It's non-optional. But we can't dull the experience by living lives of self. Captured in the prison of our own agenda, our pride, our unteachability, and our lack of humility. By eschewing those away in the community of Christ, we dilute 
the power of the Spirit that is ours. We recall this morning the words of Jonah in the Old Testament in the belly of the whale who said, those who cling to worthless idol forsake the grace that could be theirs. It's there in the second chapter. It's when he's near death, finally in the cords of death. He finally gets it. He finally sees it. He says, Lord, I hated the Ninevites. They were unworthy. And I knew that you'd make them worthy. I knew that you would love them. I knew that you would make them part of your family. I knew you'd ask me to get along with them. I knew you'd want me to go preach to them. I knew you'd want me to love that silly, silly person and people. And those were all my worthless idols that said, it's by my pride I refuse to do it. I will go and I will run in the opposite direction. And he finds himself in the cords of death and despair and depression. And there he finally realizes those who cling to worthless idols forsake the grace that could be theirs. What are you clinging to? Is it the worthless idol of pride? Is it that you truly inside your heart of hearts believe you're better than someone else? That there are people unworthy of honor? That there are people unworthy of your love? That there are people unworthy of your kindness and your mercy? Don't you realize that flies in the face of the Holy Spirit within you who has convicted you and convinced you that you have the mercy of God upon you? That God has brought you a dignity of being His child? That God has blessed you with His presence in your life? And that you and I have done not one thing to earn that? And we have not done one thing to keep it? But that we are held and we are kept by the glory of Christ within His body. And Paul says it's that that will bring Him the rejoicing of His deliverance. Not only does joy know His source, but joy also knows His his service. Look with me at verse 20 and 22 again, please. It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but with full courage, now and as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. If I live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. Paul says something interesting here. It's a great word. The word for eager expectation, it's a Greek word that means stretched out and looking. I remember the first time I saw my wife walking down the beaches of Florida. I happened to be in the water. She happened to be on the beach. There were waves. I was stretching up looking over them. Had my neck out. That's the idea of what Paul is saying here. His neck is out. He says, it's with eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed. That with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body and in my flesh. You and I must stretch out and look. 
we must fight against the idea of discouragement and complacency and especially blaming God. Things we don't see Paul doing here in this prison, but we see Paul rejoicing. We don't see Paul discouraged. We see Paul actually encouraged and encouraging others. We see Paul with an eager and a hopeful and a wonderful expectation that Christ is using his circumstances for his glory and for the deliverance of Paul. He's looking forward to how God's going to work things out. He sees everything that's going on in his life as an opportunity for Jesus to show his glory. His aloneness in the jail, his singularity in being the one who's there in prison to proclaim Christ. His physical problems, his pain, his scars that he must have, his joints, his bones that have been separated and broken and beaten near to death for the sake of Jesus. He rejoices in those because with eager expectation, he knows that in the breaking of his body, Christ will be exalted. False accusations and false persecution from those who have pride and those who seek to do him harm. Those who talk about him in the circles of the synagogue and those who undermine him in the church. Paul's not discouraged, but prays for them and sees them that they are proclaiming Christ and he will be proclaimed even further. He's not depressed, he's not down, he's not discouraged, he's not disheartened. But he's alive and he's rejoicing with eager expectation because he knows everything is going to be used for the one who he loves and honors more than any. Is that true about you and me? Sometimes it's hot in here. I think of those in control of the thermostat. What's wrong with them? Why can't they get it right? That person back there on the soundboard, sometimes he makes it too loud. What is wrong with him? That pastor behind that pulpit, who does he think he is? And sometimes he talks a lot. And he goes way past lunchtime often. Who does he think he is? All of us are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And God is using us in your life, whether you like it or not, to bring himself glory. We should not degrade one another in our circumstances, but we should be with eager expectation, with joy, wondering how is Christ going to work this all out for his glory? How will he be lifted up in our church? How will the community see that Jesus reigns in the way that we are operating? How can we rejoice to a community 
even though we're so eclectically different? How can we go out those doors with real and genuine smiles on our face despite our circumstances and in addition to our circumstances that we might rejoice that Christ is at work? See, Paul says, in life or in death, in my body or in my death, everything is for Christ. My joy is independent from myself. My joy is independent from my circumstances. In fact, I find joy in those things which are hard. Many of you may know the name Johnny Erickson Tata. She was doing a women's conference at at one time, and they were having a break, and she was in the, in the ladies' room, in the powder room, surrounded by a bunch of other ladies putting on their lipstick and, and saying, you know, Joni, it, it's so, Johnny, it's so wonderful that you have the joy that you have. I don't see how you do it. And she says, let me, let me tell you about my day. My day starts when my husband comes in at 6 o'clock, wakes me with a kiss. Tells me it's time for him to go to work, and then he leaves. And I lay in my bed alone until seven, when my neighbor comes and knocks, or comes and comes through the door, and helps me by bathing me, getting me dressed, and taking me out to the table for my breakfast. And then I spend my next hour trying to get prepared to go out in my chair to meet the day. And then I remember how much Jesus loves me and how much Jesus loves those who I'm going to encounter today. And it gives me joy. It's a hard-fought joy. It doesn't come easy. It doesn't come unintentionally. But it comes by focusing on Jesus and what He is doing. Finally, joy knows this mission. Paul ends these verses with, If I'm to live in the flesh, that means a fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to part and to be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ because of my coming to you again. Paul has full expectation that his service to Christ is not over. He has full expectation that God will continue to use him. How does he have this expectation? Because he knows the mission of Christ. And the mission of Christ was to, with relentless love, to love Paul and all who would call upon the name of Jesus. You see, because of the love that Christ has for Paul, he's able to love others more than himself. He's able to love the church more than he loved the idea 
of leaving this world and being at peace. He looked to others and said, it's more necessary that I express my love to them than I find my personal comfort. How was Paul able to do that? Because he was completely content and satisfied with the love of Christ for himself. Do you believe that Jesus loves you so much that every need of your heart will be met by him more so than any man or woman could ever do for you? It is what Jesus calls us to do, to love him in such a way that we are completely satisfied in his love for us. So much so that our sufficiency in him is so guaranteed and so full that we are completely able to die to self and to live unto others. Doesn't mean that you and I are never to be happy. Doesn't mean we're never to have things in life that we enjoy. But what it does mean is that we're to hold them with an open hand. And to realize that those things that we have, those things that we do, the people who we are in the life that God has given us is for the purpose of expressing that love to other people for the sake of Christ. It is our mission. Because of Christ's love for Paul, he also has confidence that Christ will complete the work in him that he had begun. We read it in the earlier verses. He who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. Paul's exhortation to the Philippian church. It's also Paul's expectation for himself. And it should be our expectation of the church of Jesus Christ as well. God's not done with us yet. That he has glorious work to do through us and with us and for us. For the sake of his kingdom and the glory of his kingdom. He who began a good work here at East Glenville... We'll see it through to completion. How can we rely upon that? How can we know that? Because Christ relentlessly loves you and I. We can have confidence that Jesus will use every hurt, every wound, every victory, every failure, every place where we've stumbled, every place where we have leaped over walls. He will use all of that for our good and for his glory. And because of the love of Christ for Paul, he realizes he'll get him home before dark. Each and every one of us are in circumstances and have been in circumstances where we have waited on God to act and we have felt like he's been a day late and a dollar short. When will God move? When will God change things? When will God fulfill His promises? When will God do this? When will God do that? The answer to that question is, is exactly when it's the right time. You and I have experienced loss in our life. We've experienced defeat in our lives. We've experienced frustration in our lives. We've experienced alienation in our lives. We've experienced hard times and confusing times in our lives. We've experienced great victories in our lives. We've experienced wonderful happenings in our lives. And every one of those things have happened within their perfect timing and will continue to do so in their perfect timing. And when the time is exactly right, God will get you home. 
We must trust that. We must have confidence in that. My friend and my teacher, Jack Arnold, some years back, maybe you heard about it in the news, was preaching at a church that he had founded. He come back as a missionary to do a missions conference at the church, pulpit very similar to this one, a church very similar to this size. And he was talking about the mission of Christ that Christ had given him to do in Africa, teaching other ministers, African ministers, to share the Word of God. As Jack was preaching, he came upon this verse, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, which was his life verse. Jack proclaimed, the truth of the matter is, when Christ calls me, I'm out of here. It wasn't but 20 seconds later that Jack fell to the floor with a massive heart attack behind the pulpit and was with Christ. The time is perfect for each of us. Jesus said he would return and certainly will make a visible and physical return to establish his kingdom, no doubt. But he may return to some of us today before the sun goes down and individually say the time is now. He asked the question in the Gospels, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith? What will he find in your life and in mine? Will he find that we are a rejoicing people or an angry people? Will he find that we are a rejoicing people or a fearful people? Will he find that we are a rejoicing people or a complaining people? Will he find that we had the mission of self-exaltation or Savior exaltation? Do not let the sun go down upon us before we repent and rejoice that Christ is exalted in our bodies and in our lives forever. Amen. Let us pray.